0: Am I on yet? I'm coming on. There we go. I see that I, once again, need to hit the pavement running, and I'm going to. Uh, but I do want to uh, uh, just uh, pause and and, and thank, uh, which we need to do from time to time, those who help participate in this process. Uh, uh, in case you're wondering, an awful lot of time and thought goes into everything that we do, and uh, everything from... from uh, the songs we select, uh, the prayers that are said, uh, uh, the thoughts shared at Lord's Supper. And, and, uh, uh, and I'm very thankful and I hope that, uh, you know, as, as this kind of cohesively comes together, that, that you connect the dots because they're intended to be. I hope you got an outline. If it helps you to fill it out as we go along, feel free to do so. I came across a story of a boy who had a, uh, a, a younger sister. And one day, the mother heard the little boy crying. So she goes into the room and asks, you know, why are you crying? And he said, because little sister just pulled my hair. And so the mother tried to calm him down by putting things in perspective and said, look, uh, don't be angry at her. She doesn't understand that pulling hair hurts. So the mother went back off into the kitchen to do some things. And then uh, later on, she heard the little sister cry. So she goes back into the room and says, why is little sister crying? And the boy said, well, now she knows. (laughs) I guess pain draws all of us into somewhat of a learning curve. Last time, remember, we talked about seeking God's wisdom during tough times. And one of the benefits of seeking God's wisdom during tough times is that we begin to discern the source and the purpose of any pain that comes into our lives. Now, remember, in the first chapter, James is trying to teach us how to look at suffering and pain from God's perspective. And part of what we're learning is that some of the pain in our lives comes from things external to us, circumstances that are out of our control that create pain. But even so, there's hope because even these moments can be used by God to shape us into the image of Jesus. They have purpose. And even though, even then, of course, if we hold on to that, we can experience a joy that cannot be extinguished. But we also know that not all the pain in our life is caused by external circumstances. No, some of the pain in our lives is produced internally, isn't it? And that's because of our heart's pursuit of all the wrong things. And this is what James is about to transition into, so I want you to pick up with me in verse 13 and listen. Don't let anyone under pressure to give in to evil say, God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give in to evil is from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Sin. Sin grows up into adulthood and becomes a real killer. So, my dear friends, don't get thrown off course. Now, one of the great disappointments that new Christians encounter is that they find themselves still wanting to do the very things that Jesus just got through saving them from. Someone asked Martin Luther, how come that now that I'm a Christian, I'm still faced with all the same temptations? And Martin Luther's response was because baptism didn't drown the devil. (laughs) And what Luther was trying to say is that salvation does not bring us freedom from temptation. Now, James, if you remember, doesn't say if you're tempted, but when you are tempted. It doesn't matter if you walk with Jesus for seven days, 70 years. Uh, The idea of struggling with these internal problems that we have, uh, it shows no favoritism. It's going to stay with you, although it may vary on what tempts you, you see, but it's still there. But you might also remember that Jesus himself did not escape this, did he? Remember Hebrews 4? He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Big difference. He navigated it and never sinned. Thank God. So you see, it's not a sin to be tempted. But every sin began with a temptation. And every external trial that we encounter in our life is going to be accompanied by an internal temptation. Now, if you're like me, you ask the question... If God really loves us, why doesn't he protect us from temptation? But if you're following James here, if you've been part of the things that have gone before, a God who kept us from temptation would also be a God who was, in reality, unwilling for us to grow up. They go together. Because in order for a test to be effective and for it to induce You know, growth, it also has to be a test that's capable of being failed. You see, whether we find ourselves going through financial struggles or health issues or, you know, relational traumas in our life, these things can be used by God to do great things with us. They can create greater dependence on the Lord. They can create a, a stronger sense of thankfulness for the blessing we already have They can kind of deepen our commitments to being more forgiving and more pure and more compassionate and more giving. But hovering nearby these things is also the temptation to grow bitter and angry and impatient and ultimately just to stop believing in God altogether. So on the top of your outlines, understand, Satan is not going to step aside simply because we've invited God to step in. Satan is going to try to get you to flunk the very test that God so desperately wants you to pass. Now hear this. We've been here before. God is never going to give you a test that is impossible for you to pass. And so God actually proves his love for us, not by protecting us from temptation, but by protecting us in the midst of the temptation. What is it that we're supposed to pray? Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, you must remember, certainly you realize, that Satan traffics in the realm of deceit. Jesus said, lying is is his native language. That's all he knows. And if we as believers do not face these times of testing with our eyes wide open, then, as James says, we can easily be thrown off course by the lies that we believe. And James tells us, and that's what I want to walk through here, is consider the lies that trip us up as we navigate tough times in our lives. And James tells us the first lie is, God let me down. You see, rather than take ownership for my sins, I find someone to blame. And you know something? God is always conveniently present. It's not too hard to get there. In other words, if God had not let this happen to me, I would not have done this. So it's God's fault. He's supposed to be in charge. He's the one that's in control of things, right? But he let me down by putting me in a situation that all I could do was fail. Ever been there? Everyone raised their hand. But James tells us that the place to point the finger is in. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. You see, the problem is certainly not up there. And the problem, essentially, is not out there. Ultimately, the problem is in here. Now, there's an infrastructure to this. That James is really drawing from. It comes right out of Jewish teaching and doctrine. The Jews taught that there were, that everyone has what they call two yetzers or two impulses. The impulse to do good and the impulse to do evil. And that's drawn right out into the New Testament. Paul called that impulse to evil the sinful nature. And these impulses war inside of every one of us. Now, I remember as a child of seeing an apple and it had a worm in it. In fact, for some time after that, I would not eat apples. And I asked my mother, how did it get there? And she explained to me that the worm, in essence, was actually born inside the apple. See, what happens is, as a moth comes by, a certain kind of moth, and it lays an egg on the apple blossom, and then the, 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 the apple grows up around it, and the egg hatches inside the heart of that apple, and then the worm eats its way out. You see, the worm didn't eat its way in, it was already born inside, wanting to get out. Hmm. James tells us that we are all born. With a sinful nature that's trying to get out of you and me. Now, yes, having been united with Jesus on your outlines, we have been set, from, set free from the penalty of sin. But listen, we will not be free from the pull of sin until we get our resurrected, you know, the uncorrupted bodies. As long as we live in these sin-diseased bodies. That sinful nature is just going to keep trying to get out. And James tells us that's where sin comes from. So blame has to be very carefully positioned. Don't shift responsibility, because if you're blaming, you're not growing. Think about it. If you're blaming, you're not growing. Because it is from our own evil desires... That In the IV, it says we are dragged away and enticed. Now, how many of you in this room are into, you know, kind of the outdoor, you know, hunting and fishing? Well, a few hands. I know there's more than that. This is a good place to cue in because the very words that James uses here come right out of the hunting and fishing world. To be dragged away is the word for a hunter who goes out and sets a snare. Now, what does the hunter do? Does he advertise the snare? No. He camouflages the snare. And the word for enticed is just like you might expect, is a word uh, of a fisherman throwing out a hook. And you don't catch a fish without bait. So, you have to disguise the hook with something that's appealing to the fish. Right? Right? Now, James tells us this, interestingly enough, that Satan goes fishing just like Jesus does. He goes on to enforce the truth that we are enticed, it says in the NIV, by our own evil desires. Now, notice the individuality of that. In other words, we each have enticements that appeal specifically to each one of us. Now, I'm not a fisherman, but I did take fly fishing lessons. And I remember we, for quite a long time, we kind of practiced the, you know, on dry land. And then they finally took us to a river. And the first thing we had to do was choose a fly as our bait. Now, there are thousands of options of different kind of flies that you can choose from. So what our instructor did... He went to a shallow part of that river, reached down to the bottom to some vegetation, yanked a bunch of it up, put it out on a dry rock, and sifted through it and found the different kind of bugs that were in there that happened to be the kind of things the fish at that moment were eating. And then he said, now I want you to choose from within the arsenal of flies that you have, and I only had six at the time, well that's all I still have, but six flies, and find the one that looks most like one of those bugs. And I thought to myself greedily, why, that's not fair. How can they resist? Which, by the way, is precisely the point. Because I know there's more to it than that. I only caught two fish in about three hours. But what James is cluing us in on here is that our ancient foe knows each each one of us well enough to tailor-make his temptations to get our attention. He knows the bait that you and I individually are most easily seduced by. Now, let's be honest here. There are times in our life where we knew that we were being fished for. And we just kept on nibbling, didn't we? Why do we do that? Why do we flirt with what we know is going to hurt us? Which brings us to the second lie that we tell ourselves, and that is sometimes, let's be honest, sin's worth it. Sometimes we're drawn into believing that disobedience will bring about some blessing that God is holding back from me. Isn't that what goes through your mind? And by the way, doesn't that sound familiar to you? Well, that takes me all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. The very first temptation that was ever cast upon this earth was this one. Why doesn't God want you to eat from this tree? It looks good. It smells good. It's bound to taste good. Why, what does God have against you anyway, that he would keep something from you that's so good? And let's face it, it did taste good. If there wasn't some sort of, you know, temporary thrill in sin, there would be no allure, right? Right? But the bait always conceals a hook, and the hook always hurts. So James tells us in verse 15, uh, the contemporary English version, our desires make us sin, and when sin is finished with us, it leaves us dead. Think about that for just a moment. If We let these principles just go by. Think about that for just a moment, of the death that has been created in your life from sin. By the way, the very first doctrine that was denied in the Bible, did you ever stop to think about this, was the doctrine of judgment on sin. Sin brings death to every area of my life and your life. It brings physical death. It brings relational death. I mean, just think back in your own relational cemetery. You know, how many are there? It brings emotional death. How many hang-ups that we carry because of where we've been, what we've done? And it brings spiritual death. You and God have a hard time getting together sometimes, right? Right? Just ask Adam or David or Samson if there's a future in sin. Ask them. And while you're at it, why don't you just ask the person sitting next to you? You know, when we think of giving our testimony, we usually think in terms of, you know, sharing the victories in our lives. You know, let me tell you about what God has done in working in my life. Let me tell you about how in some way or another God has redeemed me. And that's wonderful, isn't it? We need to hear those things. But what if this morning we had a, let me tell you how the devil tricked me, testimonial session. Let me tell you about the pain that I went through because I walked away from God because I was disobedient. Now, I know it wouldn't be as exciting, but it would probably mature us more. Let me tell all of us this. Satan offers no gifts. None. Grace is not even in his vocabulary. Everything he offers comes with a price. I guess some of them are so unassuming that we're willing to take you know, the risk of it. But as one preacher I heard say, you don't get your kicks and avoid the kickbacks. It's just the way life works. But James is not through. God's gifts are always going to be better than Satan's bargains. And you know what the proof of that is? It is your own redemptive history. Now, I want you to pick up with me in verse 16. He's going to transition again. And you'll notice throughout this text, starting in verse 1 of James chapter 1, he's pounding out this idea. He wants you to realize that this is absolutely imperative if we're going to navigate any problems in our lives. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. The gifts are like rivers of light cascading down from the Father of light. There is nothing deceitful in God, nothing to faced nothing fickle. He brought us to life. And the word in Anabay is he, he gave us birth, you see, the new birth, using the true word. And showing us off as the crown, the first fruits, the glory, you see, of all of his creatures. And there, underlining, we find the third and final lie that we're going to deal with this morning, and that is simply this. There is no hope for me. Now, the only way that can be true, people, is if God himself, ironically, is a liar. That he has in some way misrepresented himself to us, that he has somehow exaggerated what he's willing or capable to do for us. Because God's word says there are two things that offer just this unshakable, uh, uh, you know, this certain hope. And the first one we've already talked about, remember, as Paul told the Corinthians, no test or temptation that comes your way is beyond uh, the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He will never let you be pushed past your limit. He will always be there to help you come through it. We know this. Well, we acknowledge this. But number two, what James says here, the Bible says, you are a new you. You're a new person who has a divine nature that is able to conquer the sinful nature. You see, God has chosen to give us a new birth so that the flesh which once dominated us is now filled by and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. You see that sinful nature. You can't help but sin. That's all it knows how to do. But that's not that's not who you are anymore. Look at me at Peter. Second Peter one. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us out of his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us this very great and precious promises. So that through them, now watch, you may participate in the divine nature and, notice the results, escape the corruption in the world caused by the very thing James talked about, evil desires. There it is. When when we are tempted, our first thing is not to do something, it's to believe something. Even though the pull of sin remains, we must believe that the power of sin has been broken by virtue of our relationship with Jesus. Sin no longer has the authority to give orders to me. Back in the 14th century, one of the dukes there in Belgium was the Third. He was most commonly called by his nickname, Crassus, which, by the way, in Latin means uh, fat. And the reason he was called that is because he lived a life of extreme indulgence and was grossly overweight. Well, after a violent quarrel, Reynolds' younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against his brother, Crassus. Now, Edward captured uh, Crassus, but he did not kill him. What he did do was to build a special cell around Crassus in the Newkirk Castle. And what was unique about this cell was that it had windows, it had a door, and no lock. The problem was that the doors and windows were just in a fraction, a little bit smaller than normal. And so Crassus couldn't fit through them. Now, Edward promised Crassus this, that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave. But Edward also knew his brother, And each day he sent in a variety of sumptuous foods for him to eat. And so instead of dieting his way out, he actually grew larger. And when Duke Edward, the brother, was accused of cruelty for imprisoning his brother, he simply said, my brother is not a prisoner. He can leave whenever he so wills. And yet Crassus would stay in that room for 10 years until Duke Edward was killed in a battle and they finally basically tore away the the, the doors and let him out. Hard to make the connection where I'm going. We too have been duped by Satan into believing That we're in a prison to sin and we cannot get out when in fact the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus has cut those chains. It has opened that door and we can leave our addictions to sin whenever we so will. One person put it this way. I have two people that live inside of me, Adam and Jesus. And so when temptation comes knocking on my door, what happens next depends on who I send to answer it. Do you send Adam or do you send Jesus? I've got to say this, and we'll come to a close. One more thing. If we're going to transition away from playing the victim... And be able to personally actualize the promise when Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A nice principle in it. Wonderful behind stained glasses, glass uh, windows. Now, guys, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. This is all in John 8, by the way. If, you're, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. But when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And if we're going to actually realize this in our life, we must believe in the unchanging goodness of God. Since the garden, Satan has been trying to get us to question the goodness of God. To question, God's not really on my side, is he? He wants us to believe that somewhere or another, God is kind of holding out on us. But James says, no, God is good. God is always good. Boy, God is even more reliable than the sun's ability to shine. He says in the NIV, he doesn't shift like, like uh, uh, or doesn't change like shifting shadows. Do you understand the idea there? You see, even though the sun is always shining... Nonetheless, shadows kind of shift around because the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So things change around, don't they? And James says that God is even more consistent than the sun's ability to shine. God's rays of love are constant. Now, you might be going through some trials right now, and you may not be able to see the rays of God's love because of the storms in your life. Been there? That's not a flippant statement. That is a a reality that, that... just almost causes depression to look back on, doesn't it? But God is near. God has been. God is right now. God will always, always be nothing but good to you and to me. On the outlines at the bottom, if we are going to say no to temptation, we have got to say yes to the goodness of God. We've all fallen into temptation. We have all been tricked by the hook. And we all know that Satan is going to cast our way again. So before we leave here this morning, I would like for us to not do something different, but emphasize this moment that we call invitation. Take me just a few seconds please stay with me. We're not going yet. To actually use this invitation as a time to reflect where my, your life is in relationship to God. You know, if you think about it, we really, really don't do that very much. I guess maybe we're just so busy. Or maybe for some reason or another, we're in hiding. Seems to me if Satan uh, or, or if Adam and Eve could hide in the garden from God, then I, I guess we can hide in church buildings, don't you think? But isn't that one of the gifts that God offers us at this moment when He calls us all together on the Lord's day to have a few quiet moments without distraction so that we can open ourselves up to the most important thing in our lives? God. James will tell us later, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Which one of the lies do we struggle with? We're about to sing a song, and I want you to notice it is a prayer. So I want you to sing it like that. I'm asking each of you not to fall into this kind of mindless, impersonal, process. Sing, but worship while you sing. There is a difference. Don't just say the words, but actually open up your life to God in an honest way. I want everyone in this room, I encourage, to respond. Everyone. The way we tend to dichotomize life a bit by protocol, I think we lose some of this. That doesn't mean that every one of you will come forward. Everyone in this room can respond to God right where you sit. So we're going to sing an invitation song, but I want you to remain seated. I want to be introspective. I want you to pray to God. And while taking the time to reflect, if you want to seek help from this church family as a whole, by all means, come forward. But either way, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, here's the song. Respond as you see fit.